while the ship sank. On the night of Sunday 14th of April 1912, temperature had dropped to near freezing and the ocean was calm. The moon was not visible as it was two days before a new moon and the sky was clear. Captain Smith, in response to iceberg warnings received via wireless over the preceding few days, had drawn up a new course which took the ship slightly further southward. The second officer on the ship was Commander Lightoller. He remembers near perfect weather. It was as smooth as the proverbial mill pond. Not a breath of wind and the sea like a sheet of glass. In any other circumstances, those conditions would have been ideal. But anyone with experience of ice at sea knows that those very conditions and the moonless night only render the detection of icebergs all the more difficult and calls for additional alertness on the part of both officers and men. Speaking for myself, I knew only too well that there were chances if long ones, of sighting an iceberg. But as I reckon, in ample time to clear it with a turn of the wheel. On that night of April the 14th, we all, that is the captain and officers, knew perfectly well that we were just about entering the region where ice might be sighted at that particular time of the year and had taken all necessary precautions. Now throughout the day there had been the usual wireless messages from different ships reporting the weather, odd icebergs and so forth. But as none of these bergs reported lay on our course, well, they didn't directly concern us. But when the evidence came to be sifted out at the inquiry held in London afterwards, it then came out that one very vital message received in the Titanic's wireless room that night had never been delivered to the bridge. That message came from a ship called the Masaba, warning all ships of heavy pack ice, icebergs, and field ice in an area then lying right ahead of the Titanic, and what was still worse, not far away. Those immense quantities of ice were abnormal for almost any time of the year and the significance we should have attached to that report can hardly be exaggerated. In my opinion, it was a warning of the most vital importance. You see, I was officer of the watch and in charge of the ship when that Masaba message came over, and I know perfectly well what I should have done if it had come to my hands. Without a shadow of doubt, I should have slowed her down at once. That would have been imperative and sent for the captain. More than likely, in fact almost certainly, he would have stopped the ship altogether and waited for daylight to feel his way through. Anyhow, the long and short of it is neither he nor I nor any other officer of the ship got that message. At 11.40 p.m., while sailing about 400 miles south of the Grand Banks of Newfoundland, disaster struck. We were steaming that night at a good 22 knots. At 10 o'clock, I was relieved as officer of the watch by Murdoch, W.M. Murdoch. He and I had been shipmates in many of the ocean greyhounds. And both of us had crossed this ice region times without number. 
both in clear weather and what's more in fog. After the usual formalities, I handed over, wished him joy of a few perishing cold hours, and went below. I expect his watch went on as mine had done. Nothing to see and nothing to hear except the distant roar of the water at her bows, that and the half-hourly bells with a lookoutman's cry of all's well. Of course, he knew nothing of the death trap lying ahead of us any more than I did. And so five bells, six bells, and seven bells went by. But barely ten minutes had passed after the sound of the last bell when there were three sharp clangs on the crow's nest bell, followed by a cry from the lookout cage, Ice right ahead, sir. Murdoch Evangly saw the massive ice practically at the same time as the lookout men and shouted, Hard a starboard, full speed a